All right. Well, Pastor Josh is uh, out in Spofford uh, preaching at, uh, at, at the church there. And from there, we have Pastor Lou Miller, uh, who's been one of uh, Josh's mentors over the years, who is going to come and preach here. So we can be praying for two pastors uh, as, as they preach. But uh, let me uh, uh, start, though, by reading uh, from Scripture. We'll be in the book of Second Peter. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, those red books uh, underneath the pews are uh, our Bibles, and you are welcome to bring one of those home as our gift to you. Um, and uh, don't feel ashamed to, to go to the uh, table of contents in the beginning, if that will help. Second uh, Peter is in the uh, New Testament toward the end, and we'll be reading out of chapter 1. So it'll be 2 Peter, chapter 1, and uh, verses uh, 12 to 21. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, we thank you that we don't have to depend on others' interpretations, uh, that, that your word speaks clearly. Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, both as Josh preaches uh, to, to the West and, and Lou preaches here today, uh, that the words that come out of their mouths would be your words, coming from you, coming from your scripture, coming from your spirit, uh, that we would hear, uh, respond, and, and act upon them. And uh, that all of this would bring glory to your name. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. morning, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Very good, very good. It's a pleasure to be here. As was said, I'm, I'm the senior pastor at Grace Community Church in Spofford, uh, where I've been for 38 years, and uh, I'm living in the house that I was basically born in, and so I don't get out that often, and <laughs> it's, it's good to be here today. If it wasn't for Josh, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't leave the town. Uh, 
my wife, Debbie, here, and, and she wanted it to be known that she's from New Jersey. And so if you want to talk to her afterwards, you can do that. Um, yeah, you can pray for her. Uh, I have known uh, Josh since the, uh, I don't know how long, for quite a while, and we converse quite often. And uh, he, he's a strange little feller. Uh, <laughs> And I, I find him uh, that I'm strange too. And you got to be a little cracked to let the sun shine through. So uh, we've had some good conversations theologically, philosophically over the years. And I find him to be one whose desire is to stay true to the faith regardless of what's going on in society. And, and we're all tugged to try to be something that we're not. But I find in Josh a kindred spirit and a co-worker in Christ. And I find that encouraging. And I see that in your faces here. Well, at, at our church, we have been uh, studying the book of Second Peter, and so I kind of want to squish a couple, three sermons together into one and share with you what we've been learning, but let, let us pray. Our Father, thank you for this morning again, and just open our eyes to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You would be amazed at the various ways in which people try to receive guidance from God. Uh, Chuck Swindoll gives us a couple of illustrations, and he says, take the feller, for instance, who decided while driving that if the next four lights were green, that would be a sign that God wanted him to go to the missions field. (laughs) Well, the lights were green, and he went, and he didn't last but two years. Or he said, consider the woman who was struggling with whether she should take a trip to Israel. And and when she woke up in the morning, her digital clock said 747. (laughs) And so she knew that that was God's sign because she would be going to Israel on a Boeing 747. Ridiculous, isn't it? We need not even mention attempts of people to determine the future through astrology or horoscopes. Why do people seek guidance from all of these kinds of uh, sources? Well, I mean, if you think about it, we all are interested in the future. We all have a curiosity about it. And secular life has left us dry and empty, and so we all crave, even if we're not believers, we crave to be attached to whatever is up there and, and that he must talk to us as well. Well, the thirst for spiritual guidance leads people to put a little too much stake in visions and dreams and impressions. Though I'm not denying God can't use those things, they get us into trouble sometimes. And it brings us to the subject at hand found in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. So we have been journeying through chapter 1, and 2 Peter is here. Uh, uh, I want to give you some tips on how to digest what we're about ready to say. The main theme of Second Peter is Peter felt it necessary to warn against false teachers that were creeping into the church. Chapter 2 is one of the deepest uh, descriptions of what a false teacher is and what to watch out for. And so he's warning them about what is to come. And the main doctrine that they objected to, it seems, is the thought that Messiah is going to return in some sort of judgmental way. God is love. He doesn't judge. The object, they object to the nature of the second coming, and they view it as a myth, and that they have some truth that is more uh, palatable. 
And so to combat this teaching, Peter goes back to the basics in the beginning of chapter 1. In, in verses 1 through 11, and we don't have time to unpack it all, but he tells us that we have all the resources that we need. We have all the divine power and the resources to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. We've already been given it through the word. And then he says, because you've been given all the power and the promises, you need to add to it your efforts to grow in virtue and knowledge and excellence and patience and self-control, that your part of the equation is to work it like a farm. You know, you've, you've been given a farm. Now you've got to go out and take the implements and do something. If you don't work on your farm the way you should, it all turns into weeds, right? It goes to seed. And so he's given us a farm. We, we don't have to buy it, but we've got to work it. And so that's what verses 1 through 11 is all about. And so <clears throat> Peter is wise enough to know that he can't just say it once and that's it. And so we must be constantly reminded of what we already know. That's the theme of our text. So how do we keep the resources of God on the forefront of our mind Peter gives us three ways in verses 12 through 21, and I'm going to really focus on verses 19 through 21. I'm sorry, we don't have the time to go through everything. But there are three points he's making in 12 through 21 on how do we engage in what is called a ministry of remembrance. First, we need to value the repetition of truth that is delivered to us by godly teachers over the past 2,000 years. Secondly, we must remember that that truth is based on the authoritative historical witnesses of the apostles. And third, we must remember that it is based on the authority of God's prophetic word, which is unbreakable. And so we've read the scripture now, and I just want to briefly talk about this first point, that we must remember the truth, that, that it is passed on by godly teachers. And so Paul says, I, I, I want to remind you of these qualities, all these things in verses 5 through 7. And he says, I need to do this because I'm not going to be here very much longer. Uh, I, I'm getting old, he says. And so I intend to remind you of what you already know. Now, Peter is 60 years old. Uh, I'm 60 years old. And we know what that means. Life is over. You're all washed up. You're one greasy chicken away from a heart attack. An old woman once said, you got to remember, old folks are worth a fortune. They got silver in their hair, gold in their teeth, stones in their kidneys, lead in their feet, and gas in their stomachs. She said, I've, been, I've become, a, 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 as I've become a little older, uh, I sent you, I last saw you, a few changes have come in my life, and frankly, I've become quite a frivolous old gal. I see five gentlemen every day. As soon as I wake up, willpower gets me out of bed. Then I go to see John. <laughs> then Charlie Hoss comes along, and when he's here, he takes up a lot of my time. When he leaves, arthritis comes by, spends the rest of the day, and he doesn't like to stay in one place too long, so we go from joint to joint to joint. 
And then at the end of the day, I'm so tired, I go to bed with Ben Gay. P.S. The preacher came by the other day, and he said, you know, at your age, you better be start thinking about the hereafter. And I told him, oh, I do, I do, believe me. No matter where I go, whether in the parlor or in the kitchen or down in the basement, I get there and I say, well, what am I here after? <laughs> the point is, people did not live too long in those days, and Peter knew his life was coming to an end. He was actually in prison. He would never see the light of day, and he would be shortly crucified. And so his purpose for teaching was not to come up with something new, but to remind them of what they already knew. He knew he was leaving, but he knew that they had everything they needed to live lives godly in Christ Jesus. They didn't need a new revelation, they just needed to remember what has already been given. And that's why, in short, we need to respect the teachers that teach this book over the past 2,000 years. But what is it that the godly teachers teach? That brings us to our second point, that we must remember the truth is based on the authoritative historical apostolic witnesses, verse 16. Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses. You see, apostles were ordinary men chosen personally by Christ himself to be his representatives. And they witnessed the integrity of Christ's life, his miracles, his power, his teaching. And Peter, James, and John had a unique situation where they went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. And at that point, Elijah and Moses joined Jesus, and Jesus stripped back the veil of his flesh and gave them just a glimpse of his coming glory and how he is going to come in full righteousness upon the earth. So in a sense, Peter saw the second coming of Christ. Finally, these apostles saw this Christ killed and then raised from the dead, and their lives were forever changed. In fact, they died for what they saw and what they heard, and, that's, and they delivered words that Christ told them to deliver. So today, we want to answer the last point of this passage, which is, what is it that they were basing their faith on? We have their writings in the New Testament, but they had something they were studying, and it was what is called the prophetic word, verses 19 through 21. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you better pay attention to. Now, the pronoun we in verse 19 refers to the apostolic witnesses joined by their audience in that day and then by us today. And the subject is the promised return of Jesus Christ, which is being denied. You and I have this promise of Christ's return fully confirmed by the prophets. It's as if Peter is saying, look, if you don't believe me in what I saw and what I heard, then believe the more sure prophetic word that is more fully confirmed. We have a source of information to remember that is sure and strong. You see, your faith is not based on having some sort of mountaintop experience like Peter, James, and John. In fact, Theologian David Helms rightly said, witnesses are essential 
but God does not need to appear in the flesh every 40 or 50 years to enlighten us and to confirm his love for us. Seeing isn't essential for believing. Reading God's word is. You see, so what is it that is more fully confirmed here? Well, we see in verse 19, it is the prophetic word. More fully confirmed is not necessarily saying that prophecy is better than Peter's witness, but that it is, it is further confirmation of his point that we already have everything we need to live lives godly in Christ. Now, how was the prophetic word, and by the way, the prophetic word is referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, because that's all that was written at the time Peter is talking here. That was the text of the church. And so, how is the Hebrew scripture more fully dependable, fully confirmed? Well, a prophet in the Old Testament didn't just stand up and say, hey man, I got a prophecy, you got to listen to me. They had to go through some verification first. There was actually a prophetic school. So just for a short definition, prophecy involves speaking to people like this, but it always had kind of a foretelling aspect too. Almost every use of prophecy in scripture, you find that they were giving something that is going to happen or a prediction as well as just preaching. So preaching is not prophecy. Prophecy had a predictive element to it. And so there were several tests for a prophet in the Old Testament, but one of them was they had to be 100% accurate all the time. If they were wrong once, they were stoned. Deuteronomy, Exodus. So the standard wasn't 50% right. I mean, half the time, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day, but that doesn't make it a prophet. Before they could be trusted, in regard to some long-range prediction, they had to often make a short-range prediction. And that verified that what they were talking about is true. Or they had to perform some sort of miracle to prove that they had some extraordinary power. So for instance, if I stood up to you and said, I'm a prophet, and I'm going to make a prophecy that in 100 years from now, on this very day, the Empire State Building is going to collapse. Well, you have a right to fold your arms and say, whoopee-ding. I'm going to be dead. I, how do I know it's true? I'm not going to see it. And so you would say, you've got to show me something else before I believe that. So I say, uh, all right, to show that I'm right about what's going to happen in 100 years, I'm telling you in six months to this day, the Piscataqua Bridge is going to fall into the sea. And then one year to this day, the George Washington Bridge is going to collapse. Now, that can happen in your lifetime, and you can verify if those things happen, then you can believe me about the 100-year mark. See how it works. This, this happened a lot in the Old Testament. Now, the amazing thing that we can comfort ourselves with is that there wasn't just one prophet in the Hebrew Scriptures that did that. There were multiple prophets who, who were 100% correct, and they performed miracles and signs to prove who they were. And so... It's in that sense that prophecy is more fully confirmed than just one person's testimony. It's because of fulfillment that we can be so sure of, of, of the re- writings of the Hebrew scriptures. Y- you know, there are between 300 and 400 prophecies, if you want to put that, 
think it's 300, 400 prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament of both his returns. And Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, cites a study by Peter Stoner of Science Speaks. And he just takes eight of the ones that regard his first coming. And he, he, he makes a projection that the likelihood of one, one man fulfilling just these eight is 10 to the 17th power of chances. Where, where Christ was born, how he was born, his lineage, his betrayal, his manner of death, the casting of lots, his entrance into Jerusalem, and the messenger that preceded him. If you just took those eight, the chances are 10 to the 17th power, 17 zeros. And to illustrate it, Peter Stoner said, if you, if you took the state of Texas and flattened it out, and you piled it high with two feet of silver coins, and then you marked one of those coins and mixed it up somewhere in the state of Texas, and then took a man and blindfolded him on the edge and told him to start walking as long as he wanted, but when he stopped, he had to stoop down and pick up a coin, and the chances of it being the one that's marked is 10 to the 17th power. I mean, this is evidence that demands a verdict. The apostles, meaning Peter, were convinced because they saw each of these things and many more fulfilled in their lifetime, in their very eyes. They saw all of this come about. And by the way, the, the literal past fulfillment of prophecies that have already been fulfilled is the standard by which we judge the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. Why is it that we spiritualize all the future prophecies, but everything else was literal? It's not right. Walter Kaiser always used to say, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, although I work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> I agree. I'm not a prophet. I don't grab words out of thin air. I'm a preacher who takes the divine words that came from God and try to explain them. That's all that a preacher does. But since this prophetic word is so confirmed, Peter goes on to say in verse 19, you do well to pay attention to it. That's an understatement. It is a lamp in the midst of darkness until Christ returns. You know, there is a stress today from modern preachers that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. They claim that it's the Old Testament why our young people won't believe in Christ because there's too many funny stories or wickedness in there that they can't fathom. I would submit to you that just the opposite is the truth. It is only a stumbling block because we spend so little time reading it in its context to figure out what it's trying to say. It's foggy because we look at things from our twisted view of, of justice instead of looking at things from God's perspective. And, and because of this, I, I have made a point in the past few years to take our young people graduating from high school through the whole Old Testament in a survey course so that they have to read it themselves. And you will be surprised at how many of them come and say, you know, I thought this passage was ridiculous until I read the one, three passages before it. And then it made sense. I, re I remember in high school, I, I purchased a really beautiful black leather Zondervan study encyclopedic Bible. And it, it was pure level I, leather. And I, 
I, I used to pet it. It, it, it was just a wonderful Bible. And, well, I was visiting a friend, and I was living by myself, and I was visiting some, a family, and I brought my laundry with them, and at that time, I didn't sort my colors from my whites. I just put them all in a big basket, and I threw my Bible on the top of it and drove to the house. And when I got there, I went to the basement, opened the lid, and poured the whole basket right in the washing machine. And needless to say, an hour later, my Bible was in millions of little pieces, except the Old Testament was a little wrinkled, but it was readable. The entire New Testament was gone. Well, I took that as a prophetic sign <laughs> that I should be spending more time in the Old Testament. Didn't dawn on me that I shouldn't love leather, but I, I, I started reading the Old Testament over and over and over again, and I saw this picture of the Messiah and that he was the center of the Old Testament and that, frankly, I couldn't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament, quite the opposite of what people are doing today. The prophetic word is so solid, we are to treat it as a lamp shining in a dark place. That's why it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Can you see the implications of this? Surrounding us is darkness. But truth is pictured as a lamp, not a floodlight, a lamp. And, you know, you've got to kind of stay close to a lamp to be within its, within its uh, rays. But this is a dark place, and it gives us a picture of the coming of Messiah in justice and righteousness. That's what the Old Testament is all about. And so when false teachers say we shouldn't be concerned about the future, we shouldn't be concerned about judgment, God's a nice God. But there are other things we learn from this book. We learn uh, that there are exceedingly great promises within it that when we are sick, we draw comfort from the Holy Spirit. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. and It is our source of hope. The Bible always treats topics real, it, it, with realism. When it, when it describes believers, it describes them with all their blemishes and their shortcomings. It doesn't try to paint everybody as saints with halos on their heads. It warns us of the darkness of our heart, where, you know, other religions don't do that. They tell you, you're okay, I'm okay, we just don't know it, you just need a little time, a little boost, a little self-help. But this book is so realistic, it's sobering. You say, you know, I, I, I came here to be cheered up, and you're telling me I'm lost. Well, yeah. You are... But you don't have to stay that way. That's the point. It's admitting your lostness that leads to being found. You don't want to be in a place that tells you you're all right from birth. In his mercy, God's plan for this, the ages is to make atonement for sin and reconcile us to himself and to call people out of darkness into his kingdom of light. Humankind is still in rebellion, and yet that light is still shining and will continue to shine until a specific time. And so how long is that? Verse 19 goes on to say, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And 
just quickly, the day dawn in summary is, is talking about the day of the Lord. Peter's going to expand on this in chapter 3, and so I'm jumping ahead. But the day dawns is talking about the day when Christ the Messiah returns to set things right. And part of setting things right is to deal with unrighteousness and to reward those who follow him. That's the day of the Lord. But then the morning star is evidently a reference to Christ. In, in fact, in, in Revelation twenty two sixteen, he says, I am the bright and morning star. But there's a, play, there's a figure uh, uh, in, of speech, because we know that Venus is actually known as the morning star, because it's the first star that comes in the dawn, predicting the full sun of the day. That's what Christ was. We got a glimpse of him in his first coming. When he comes again in the day of the Lord, there will be no darkness whatsoever. It will all be chased away. And so do me a favor and do yourselves a favor. If I or Josh or anyone stands up here and says they've had a vision that is on par with the prophetic scriptures, get rid of them. It's illegal to stone them. Get rid of them. Christ's return will be a full revelation, total light. In the meantime, we have a lamp shining so our feet know where to walk in this dark place. His word is sufficient for anything you need to live your lives godly in Christ Jesus. I believe the phrase, in your hearts, is an indication on that day when final transformation will occur. Not only will he flood the earth with his light and change things on the outside, he's going to totally change you once and for all on the inside so that you don't have doubts anymore. You know, sometimes we get confused in the dark. But one further reason why we should give attention to the prophetic scriptures is found in verses 20 and 21. It says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, comes from, ginomai, hints towards source, where it originates. Prophecy does not come from someone's, that is the prophet's, own explanation. You see, the word interpretation actually is translated to explain or to loose in other places. Mark chapter 4, verse 34, rendered it explained that Jesus explained to them the parables. So what this is saying is prophecy of the Hebrew scriptures does not originate from an attempt of the prophet's own explanation or his own opinion. The next phrase fortifies it, says, no prophecy was ever produced, that's originated, by the will of man, but men spoke from God, that's origin, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. True prophecy in the Hebrew scriptures is not purely a human attempt of a human to explain something spiritual. It is God explaining it through the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying that his experience and teaching was not conjured up by him. The prophecies of the Old Testament were not conjured up by them. It was the Holy Spirit who moved them. And the word moved is pharaoh. And you get the word ferry from it, a ferry boat, carried them across. The, the, the clearest uh, non-spiritual rendering of the word is Acts 27, 14, where, where there is a boat out on the, on the sea and a great wind came up called the Euroquillo, which is a nor'easter. And it, 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 verse 15 says they were driven along 
And that's the imagery of how God moved in his holy authors. They used their own words, but the Holy Spirit was moving them to be talking about what he wanted them to talk about. And they steered the boat, maybe, but he moved the boat along. It's called concurrence, that theologically, that the spirit and humans work together with a perfect outcome. Because, you see, God claims that the scriptures, all of the scriptures, John, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, are breathed out by God. That means God's breath. And that's why we teach from them and, and why we correct with them and we train people in righteousness. The reason we are, you are, a Bible-preaching church is because of what we find in this verse, this one in 2 Peter. This book is not the imaginations of some man or even a few men. It's the very mind and heart of God. And it's in, in its pages is revealed for anyone who will take the time to read the secret for living life, a life of light in a dark world. Any other source is a substitute and just another volume of darkness. So heed it. Now, by way of application, this does not mean that you can't find truth in other sources. It do, does not mean, but it does mean that our final foundation of truth should be the word of God. When you're making a decision in the world, it's good to ask people's advice. There's collected wisdom there. There's truth there. If you're building a building, you want to you wanna open a manual about it. But when you are making a decision about morally right or wrong things, it should be the word of God that's your final authority, not science, not some psychologist's opinion. And you say, well, what does that look like if the scriptures are not your foundation? Well, to keep it in context, we go back to verses 5 through 7, which says, you know, if, if you are building on the foundation and you are using the resources given to you, verse 5, uh, you will make every effort to grow in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness, and you'll love the brethren if all those things are the opposite of what you're experiencing. Then you're basing your foundation on something else other than Scripture. So how do you live like this foundation is yours if you are a believer? Well, when you need to make a decision, first pray for guidance, and then go to his word first of all. See what it says about the subject if it does. Seek godly advice. And when you understand it, do it. That's how you live on the foundation. But a natural question by every thinking person is, why should we believe this book over any other book of information? Why not just trust a reason or, or history? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I can give you my reasons. If I may, the following is a theological summary of why I believe in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Number one, I don't think you have to live very long before you realize that you're a limited person and you need some outside help. And you don't have to live too much longer before you realize that every person you put your hope in lets you down at one point or another. And so I don't trust human authority, perfectly anyway. And we are logical beings, and so it stands to reason that if there was a God, he would probably seek to talk to us. 
And so we start looking around. And when we do, we find that there is a source that claims to be from God. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up in this way. He says, the words the Lord said, the Lord spoke, or the Lord, where the Lord came to me, occurs 3,808 times just in the Hebrew scriptures alone. Almost every page of scripture. And in these pages, the supernatural author tells us that he set some people with with predictions that were fulfilled 100% over hundreds of years. Now, these claims are just claims, right? But they're there. And since they're there, we need to examine them to see if there's any consistency in them. Now, you need to make that investigation for yourself. And I know many of you are, and that's, uh, that's what I hear, and that's great. But for me, in my part, I've made that investigation, and I found that the prophecies that were made some hundreds and even thousands of years before they happened were fulfilled literally. I found that the subject matter of the Bible addresses things from a way that no human author ever does, and yet there are 40 different authors writing about the same thing over a period of 1,600 years with no contradictions. That's an impossibility. Not only that, I believe God revealed himself through the sending of his own son, whose very birth and life and death are the most well-attested events in all of history, not just in the Bible, including the resurrection. And all of these things were predicted in the Old Testament meticulously. And furthermore, wherever this book has gone, and that's why we send missionaries, right? It has changed the societies for the better. And there is an eternal promise in Matthew 5.18 that not, not one letter or even the dot of an I or a cross of a T is going to disappear until everything is fulfilled. I believe the scripture is both inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means it is without error in what it deems true. Infallible means it is dependable. Someone said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject it because it contradicts them. Now, does that thought bring you hope or does it make you angry? Your response may determine whether you have received the light. You see, that which testifies as to whether we are true Christians is whether we accept this biblical view of life and the authority of Scripture. It doesn't matter whether you go to church or whether you're a nice person. What matters is, have you received the light that comes through the forgiveness of the sacrifice of his son? Do you know him? And if you're not a believer, the way you get this foundation under you is you begin by receiving the core message that's repeated over and over again, that God desired to reconcile you to himself because you were in the dark. And Christ took on human flesh so that he could take your place upon the cross that you might receive life. To receive him, you have to acknowledge that you are in the dark and that he is the only light. You call out to him in the recesses of your heart and believe that he is perfect righteousness who took your place and then rose again to conquer death so that you can start to live again. Through the Holy Scriptures, God has given us the record of the deeds of Christ and a portrait of his person. And the understanding uh, transforms our being and gives us daily light. But you may ask, well, how can words 
show us Christ. I'd rather have an experience. I'd rather have a mountain experience where I see it myself or he speaks to me with just to my ears. How does the word picture Christ? Well, it was in 1898 that a man named Ben had left the East eight, eight years earlier to head out West in hopes of making his fortune. And he wasn't rich, but he was able to accumulate over 300 acres of good land, and he built a little farmhouse, and he was able to produce his own wheat and corn and all the vegetables he needed, and he even grew a little herd of 200 cattle. After eight years, he said, it's time. And so he put an ad in a, in a New York newspaper, and he said, wanted, a good woman willing to be a pen pal. Marriage is a possibility for the right woman. Before long, he began receiving letters from a girl named Molly, and their correspondence soon turned into love for each other. And now he was standing at a Kansas City train station waiting for her to, to arrive. When the train arrived, there were a, a whole mess of women coming out for the same reason, faceless horde. And suddenly, he yelled, Molly, over here. She looked his way and walked over to him and smiled and held out her hand and they shook it and, and then she let go and she said, how did you know it was me? And he pulled the packet of letters out of his back and he says, because of these here letters. And she said, but there's, there's no picture of me in, in those letters. And he dropped his head a bit and he said, oh yes there are. There's lots of pictures in your words. You see, he had spent years reading every word over and over again until he developed a picture of who this woman was. And when he saw her, he knew it was her. He fell in love with her words. Is your love for Christ deepening? The source he has given us to know him is in your hands. You do well to heed it. You do well to heed it. Would you commit yourself to a more habitual reading of God's word? Grab a friend if you can't do it on your own. Look to it every day as a lamp telling you where to step tomorrow. Our Father, Lord, we pray that you will indeed give us a hunger for your word that will never cease. That you will light our paths and help us to fan this light so that its brightness shines upon more but make us students of your word and submit us to your holy spirit who illuminates them and gives us guidance lord may we look first to you who has given us everything we need in christ's name amen